welcome to Board Game Famous, the board game podcast that dares to wonder if you upgraded every component in a board game, would it still be the same board game? I'm your host, David, and I'm joined as always with my co-host, Michael. Howdy, howdy. And I mean, print and plays exist for a reason. It's still the same board game. Sure, sure. I don't think that's... I was I was going with an upgrade component, much like Theseus's ship, but uh, that's fine. Uh, we start, as always, with, hey, Michael, what you been playing? I have been playing a couple games. Well, I've actually been playing more than a couple games, but on, like, the last episode, I'm not going to talk about all of the games I've been playing. <laughs> <laughs> My friend, shout out to Jesse, recently got the newest expansion to Root, the Marauders expansion. And so we got together and played that. So Root is an asymmetrical um, war game, is the best way to describe it. But that does disservice to the artwork and the theme of the board game, where it's a war game of woodland creatures who all look very cute and are well-designed. Shout out to the artist. I believe that is Kyle Farron. Yes, and one of Ellen's favorite board game artists. Yes. Does a fantastic job. Also did Oath and Fort. I believe these are all leader games that you're that you're listing. I'm pretty sure he's he's uh going to do all of the all the leader <laughs> games cuz it, it's just a style that they like and it it makes their games pop. Yeah, and so you're playing as these different factions in this woods vying for control somehow. And and I say vying for control somehow because it's not necessarily territorial control in like some some war games. But like you have the Empire who currently rules the forest. You have the small faction that's trying to explode and control everything. You have the Vagabond who is on his own mission. You have this religious cult that is trying to uh be well, now now you're getting into expansion factions <laughs> now, yeah yeah but these are all the factions and so you got this re- religious cult that's trying to um spread fanaticism then you have these otters that are just trying to sell stuff um <laughs> 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 uh, but in but in this most recent faction they released this most recent expansion they released two factions one which are badgers that are basically crusaders Crusader badgers who just want to go around the map uh, collecting relics, mm. <laughs> and they created these this warring rat faction that follows an angry leader roaming around causing troubles. Every so. every faction expansion makes it sound more and more like Redwall. Is every time <laughs> I, I hear this, absolutely, absolutely. And the thing I like about Root is its asymmetry. Each faction plays differently. You know, a couple episodes ago we talked about teaching board games. <laughs> Whenever you teach this board game, it's like, all right, here's how the basic phases work, but you really need to know how your faction works because what I'm going to be doing over here is going to work different than what you are. Like, everybody has birdsong, everybody has e- evening, and everybody has nighttime. But what you do during each of those phases is completely different. Yeah, um, Root, Root is just a nightmare to teach. Thankfully, we played with uh, people who played before, except for one person who picked it up pretty quickly. But I would say I was at a bit of an advantage because I was only given, I think, 24-hour notice about wanting to play. And so I looked up the factions, and I ended up watching a nice video 
that explained all the rules to my faction and some tips and tricks on how to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that super helpful. <laughs> and I, that's not something I typically do in these kinds of games. <laughs> um, but that's what I did during my lunch break the day that I played it. But it was a lot of fun. I, I really I really liked how this um, this particular faction played. So, yeah. And so the other game that I played this week, uh, this past weekend, was Boss Monsters. One of our listeners, Steph, and yes, I know Steph, you're my friend, but I describe all my all my friends as listeners in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so one of our listeners, Steph, brought over Boss Monsters with one of the newer expansions to them, and we played that. I think they have, I think four or five expansions. And I thought the game was pretty alright. It was my first time ever playing the game. Definitely felt like it had some randomness in it, but I really like the the theming where it turns it on, on its head where you are playing a monster in a dungeon who is the boss, and you are creating a dungeon that is try, supposed to attract adventurers with treasures. You're basically trying to create a dungeon so you can uh, entice... Uh, adventurers to come into your dungeon and uh so you can kill them and reap their souls so i thought the the theming was pretty cool you know turning it on the head that you're you're the evil monster that was in charge of that and i thought uh a lot of the card design was was pretty clever i'm not not sure how i felt about you know the random draws of cards getting pulled into your hand you know maybe i would have liked to see a little bit more capability of cycling of the hand of the things that you could get because i was in the first couple turns able to set up a pretty op combo which i think i was pretty lucky on but you know i'd have to i'd have to play it more what about you david what have you been playing well there's one game that i've been dying to talk to you about i've played it a couple of times now i've been i wanted to get it to the table a few times before i talked about it and normally i'm always about playing the next new game, the new hotness, the new hotness. But every now and then it's good to to find a time and look back at where games have where games came from and really reflect on how far they've gone. And this is the game that I've played as a game called Merchants of Amsterdam, designed by Reiner Knizia, the uh, the Nizzard of Oz himself. It was published by Jumbo Games and Rio Grande Games all the way back in the distant year of the year 2000. That is prehistoric for board games. Yeah, this is... So the board game, the resurgence started in America at about 1995. So this is just a few years after board games started really coming over to America. And this one has been lost to time. Ellen found it at an estate sale, showed me showed me the box, asked if I needed to buy it. It had a price tag of $8. I said it wasn't worth it. Then she told me everything was 75% off, and I said, definitely buy that for $2. 100%. That'll be worth a play or two. And I thought no one would have like heard of this game. I, I, I thought this game was lost to the sands of time. But I've been listening to another board game podcast recently called Hidden Gems. Shout out to Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast. It's uh, it's a really good one where they where they focus mainly on board games that have been lost to time. Uh, and, and this got a mention in their second episode talking about auction, auction style games because this is a Dutch auction game, and what that means makes it, sense. Makes sense. Yeah, from you know, Merchants Amsterdam, of Merchants of Amsterdam. But what that means mechanically is 
uh, in, in auction style, the price of everything you're selling starts high, and then it dwindles until somebody says, okay, that's that's what I'm willing to pay for it. That's what a Dutch auction style is. And on your turn, every single turn works the exact same way. You reveal three cards, one at a time, and decide to either keep it for yourself, discard it, or put it up for auction. And every turn, you have to choose one card for one of those piles. So one's the discard pile, one's for you, one goes up to the auction. And you can you can bid on it yourself. And once you run through the deck, a timer will progress, a, a, a little pawn will progress, and once it reaches, reaches the end of the track, that signifies the end of the game. And you're bidding on these cards to earn, earn the right to put your control tokens out on the board, and really control areas on the board. And I understand why this game was lost to time. It is visually a nightmare. You are competing over, I think, 12 different regions on a board at a time when graphic designers were not the high point. So I talk about how there's no good excuse to play an ugly board game anymore, and this this would fall in that category of an ugly board game. The board is busy, and the player colors are not helpful. You've got red, green, yellow, orange, and purple, and your tokens are huge, and they clutter up the board as the game goes on. So there's no way, there's no good way to tell who's winning at any given point. You look at the board, and it's just visually a mess. I don't have a huge problem with that. It kept me from feeling despair at the point of the game because I'm not really good at auction-style games. So during the game, I was still interested because I had no idea who was winning. You just, you couldn't tell. Are you saying that even with a second edition or a modern uplift or facelift, this game had mechanical issues that you would inherently not necessarily agree with? Or do you think this game was mechanically sound and we have learned so much in the realm of game design since the year 2000, the distant future, <laughs> uh, that that it could really benefit from that. Uh, it's not all graphic design. That's probably where it where it falters the most. But I don't think if it was released today, it would be with a with an updated graphic design, it would do very well either. There are a couple other things that it would need to update. My favorite part about breaking this out in uh, at game night was the method that the dutch auction is conducted because you need some you need some method to count down the price there's this giant clock in the middle of the table and i think this game reiner canizia sat down and went i want serious area control auction style game and then added a slapping mechanism into it. Because the first person to slap the clock in the middle stops the timer and it tells you what what price you're willing to pay for whatever is up for auction. And if you bring this game out during your game night, everyone will hate you. Because the timer was made in the 2000s. It's essentially an egg timer. Sure, it doesn't ring, but they're not quiet. Let's uh let's do a little bit of board game ASMR for a second. So every remi- remind you, this happens every single turn in the game. Every time somebody flips over a card, a card 
on their turn, you have to you have to put a card up for auction. And then across the room, you'll hear this. <laughs> until somebody's willing to pay for it. It is so funny. At first, hitting that buzzer and listening it all buzz, but eventually, since every turn kind of plays out the same, keep this card for me, throw this to the discard, we'll put this up for auction. Uh, at, at some point, you start to feel bad for everybody else in the room having to hear that annoying buzz. I hope you play this at your favorite friend's place. Yes, <laughs> yes I do. And then another one, another thing about the production, this isn't this isn't a necessarily a negative thing. I mean, it is a little bit of a negative thing because it's paper money, but it's the fact that the uh, company that produced that published this game, like I mentioned, is Jumbo. Um, and Jumbo's logo is an elephant. And they are very proud of that elephant to the point where they put it on the money for no reason. There's no Dutch elephants. That is just an elephant because, oh, we're Jumbo. We're going to put the elephant on the paper money. And then it included the tagline for no reason. The strongest currency in the world without value. And I think that is a boastful claim. <laughs> I... I, I've been talking. I've been talking bad about this game uh, for quite a bit, but at the end of the game, I had to admit that I had fun, and I'm definitely, I'm definitely gonna play it again. I won't keep it forever. I want to play it a few more times and then get rid of it. But I don't think I wasted my two dollars. I definitely got two dollars worth of fun out of this. I was gonna say, watch out, uh, board game people of <laughs> of the world. David's out there. Finding classic board games to flip for a profit. <laughs> I thought you were saying I was doing all the uh, the research into old games for to find the best ones, and I was like, no, that's that's hidden gems, like I was talking about earlier. Yeah, that's that's all I wanted to say about uh, Merchants of Amsterdam. It's it's been lost to time, but it was fun to to find it, find it out in the wild, and then just play it. Give this game some new life, and I'm glad I did. But I can see why it's not on shelves anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or talked about in forums. So I've been talking about Hidden Gems a lot. I messaged them that I was going to be talking about this game, and they had briefly talked about it on their podcast. They're also going to be recording about this about this game in a little bit on their podcast as well. And I'm, I'm excited to hear what their thoughts are. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> And the next section is Game of the Fortnite, where each fortnight we put one game above all others, at least for two weeks. And this fortnight we are talking about Cascadia, designed by Randy Flynn, art by Beth Sobel, and published by Flatout Games and AEG. Dave, you've played this the most recent. How about you go ahead and talk about it? So Cascadia is a delightful little tile drafting game that pairs tiles with fun little woodland creatures. And on your turn, you draft a pair of tiles and a woodland creature, you fit the tile to your little uh, ecosystem, and you put your animal on top of a tile that you have in your ecosystem. You're trying to match habitats on tiles because the person who has the biggest area of each habitat scores certain amounts of points, and then you're trying to place your animals on your board so that 
their scoring conditions are met. And since each animal has a different type of scoring condition, you are cleverly trying to puzzle out how to put your tiles on the board and what animals you want to place on there to score the most points. For example, salmon often wants to be in a long run, so you want a single row of salmon. Bears want to be next to each other, but not next to too many bears. Elk want to be in a straight line or a specific formation. Foxes want a variety of animals around them. And eagles want to be off by themselves. One of the great things about this game is the scoring conditions that I just mentioned are the starter scoring system. This game has a lot of variety because each animal comes with a card, with with several cards that give them different scoring conditions. So the game has a lot of variability in its setup when you shuffle up those animals and then you pick one of each type and that's how those animals are going to score this game. And it keeps itself fresh that way. Another Another clever bit of design that I liked about this game was certain habitats that you draft, certain uh, tiles that you're adding to your ecosystem, will only host one type of animal. But if you do put that animal on that tile, you get a what's called a nature token, and those let you break the rules a little bit in clever ways. You can flush out the animal tokens before you take, take a uh, pair. You can choose a tile and then any animal token that's available instead of the specific one it's paired with. And I think these rules together make a very simple but a very engaging drafting game. I think that last rule that you mentioned is what makes the game for me. Because you only have a few tiles and a few corresponding animals to choose from. And so if you didn't have that ability to... Uh, change the game state with those nature tokens, you would be stuck with bad luck. You know, the person who would win would be the person who had the best luck. But to be able to mitigate that risk by changing game conditions and the rules a little bit, I I do really like that. Um, and, And like most of these games, you said that there's all these different kinds of animals. It's good to focus on not all of them, Mm-hmm. I don't think you could win by focusing on all, all the animals. You got to pick one of them and try to focus on that, or a couple of them, a couple of them, and try to focus on the, like fo- focus on the fish. Try to make the biggest run of fish that you can if that's the kind of rule that you're playing with, or focus on the eagles or foxes. So, are you all about the animals in this? Because that's exactly opposite of how I play. I'm all about the size of the ecosystems at the end. I'm always trying to match up the the tiles with like the correct habitats types. So there's mountains, rivers, prairies, and they've all got different artwork on them. And I don't think I've lost this game yet just cause I'm always, I'm able to make decent sized habitats of each type of terrain and score big points at the end of the game for that. Well, I've only played once. So, Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I played once and I believe I talked about it on the podcast, but get my friend to bring it again so we can talk about it some more you know off podcast we're, we're not gonna you know bring it up every single time <laughs> <laughs> but uh no i think just like making the birds happy i was just trying to make the foxes happy i found this game to be to have it was one of those games that we were joking at the beginning and like a euro game it got more quiet as the game went on, as we became more and more focused on our each individual pu- puzzle, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, BGG describes this as kind of a solo solitaire game, which is Multi- multiplayer. Correct. Yeah, multiplayer solitaire. Multiplayer solitaire, which is mostly correct. Uh, as we are playing with our own individual ecosystem, figuring out our own little puzzle, and by the end of it, you're just like, if I just get one bird, just <laughs> one bird, and but if I don't get the terrain for him, I don't know what I'm going to do with him. <laughs> I have to get this terrain and this animal <laughs> because, like, like you said, uh, you mat- matching up the animals uh, to the based on the tile is it's very beneficial. So I, I, I try to maximize that. It's interesting that you bring up that that stress of getting a, trying to get exactly what you want for this game because I never felt that. I never felt it once while playing Cascadia. And I, I played, I think, two or three times. Um, so more than you. Haha. But I did I did feel that playing its younger sibling, Calico, which I talked about during uh, during the last podcast episode. Did, did Calico come out before 2021? Uh, yeah, it's the older sibling. Did I say younger? Older. Yes. <laughs> it's older sibling Calico, uh, which is, it's it's more restrictive than Cascadia. In Cascadia, you have a starting hex. You have a, you have a starting set of three hexes that you build out from in any shape that you want. It's very freeing. You can, you can build however you want. In Calico, you have a board that has a set number of tiles that you can place in it in a set number of positions. So your choices get more and more constricted. And that's when I felt that tension. I felt it in, in Calico because in Cascadia, your board's so open. I was just like, Oh, I just hope I get a tree tile. I don't care what animal goes on it because I'll put whatever animal elsewhere on my board. But in Calico, I got down to, I need purple stripes. And if somebody takes purple stripes from me, I'll stab them. (laughs) <laughs> it's no longer multiplayer solitaire when there's murder involved. <laughs> Calico is also a, only a two-player game, correct? No, it plays up to four. Hmm. What am I, what am I thinking of then? Patchwork? Maybe. It's another cutthroat quilting game. So what do you think about Cascadia? Would you give it the board game famous gold star? As a puzzle game with simple rules, and I wouldn't say that it is the most stressful even though i i described as the ending as stressful but it was always quiet would i would i give it the gold star uh probably not probably not i really enjoyed it though okay so i, I know several people listed it in their uh their top games of 2021 i wouldn't necessarily put that but i really enjoyed it so how about you would you give it the gold star i would describe cascadia as delightful and relaxing but it wasn't exciting so if you're not looking for excitement in a board game it's perfect for you it's a nice cozy game you mentioned being a little stressed out by it i never was it was just i I definitely see that multiplayer solitaire i'll take this and i'll add it to my ecosystem i'm doing so well over here I'm I'm not allowed to give Calico the the board game famous gold star, am I right? We're not allowed to we're not allowed to give stars out to games we're not talking about. No, no, we're not we're not talking about Calico this week. I'm gonna go out and play Calico before we can discuss it in the game of the Fortnite, right? I know I know at least one of my friends has it, so Alright. Uh, when this episode releases, just tell me guys, alright? Just message me on our on our Discord, link in the link in the description. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I, as a tile laying game, it's very good. It's not my favorite type of game. I'm not a huge fan of tile layers. So a game, a tile laying game that is fun is still impressive to me. But I still prefer the Big Brother of uh, of Cascadia. So I ha- that means I can't give this one the gold star. I've got to save it for for a different game. Who knows what that game is? <laughs> <laughs> The next segment of the podcast is Brother Talk, the part of the podcast where we discuss really whatever we're feeling this fortnight. And this section is phrased in the form of a question because I couldn't phrase it any other way. But the the what I wanted to discuss is, do people put too much stock in the top 100 games of all time, according to BGG? Yes. All right, segment over. Uh, thank you for a discussion. <laughs> what a lively banter. There was some good back and forth. <laughs> I I do agree. I do agree with that. Why why is the BGG BGGG GGGG uh, top 100 so talked about? And I think it goes back to the simple question of why we play board games. We play board games to have fun having some kind of indicator of which board games are worth our time and our money with all the options that are out there is helpful. And you can get it through standard reviews, written or video, or you can get it through ranking systems. Or you can get it through podcasts. Or you can get it through podcasts. You know, (laughs) audio, audio. Shout out to us. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think the BGG... Top 100 is a pretty good indicator of of what a good game is. I don't think that there are any terrible games at the top 100, but just like any other medium, it is in no way indicative that these are going to be the board games that you enjoy. So in that regard, yes, people do put too much stock into it. Um... It, it does make for some good story moments, like when the Niz had his game fall out of. Sorry, Reiner Knizia. Doctor Reiner Knizia. Let's let's Doctor. give him a little. Let's give him sorry. a little respect this episode. Mister Doctor Professor Reiner uh, Reiner Knizia, <laughs> <laughs> the Nizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, it makes for great stories whenever his game fell, his last remaining game fell out of the top one hundred. It makes for. Good stories. You know, Gloomhaven, the top-rated game of all time. But the point of board gaming is to have fun. And if the number ranking next to the game doesn't reflect what you actually like, who cares? <laughs> who cares? As long as you have fun. The top 100 puts too much stock in new games and heavy games. We really like heavy games, but we don't think that uh, just because a game is short, it doesn't belong... Um, that it doesn't have a place in the top 100. There are plenty of short games that I think are just as good or even better than a lot of the top 100 games. And so these rankings are inherently flawed to a certain style of game. So a couple of things I want to talk about. I'm just going to hit on a couple of points that you, you briefly mentioned and bring up a few of my own. You were right. The top 100 games does tend to skew a little bit to the newer games because these... The top 100 games on BGG are based on popular ratings. And with more people coming into the hobby, 
more people are focused on the newer games, more people are going to rate them, so they'll skew higher on that list. My top 100 games list that I'm playing through, yes, I am still playing through it, though I haven't played one on the top 100 in quite some time. That segment's on a, on a bit of a hiatus right now until I can get another one to the table. But, but it does skew newer games. My list is from 2019, which is just three years ago. And I think maybe 50% have fallen out of the top 100 now. I guess all those games now suck. <laughs> <laughs> just straight garbage. <laughs> just straight garbage. That's how it works. They're no longer in the top 100. Don't even consider them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and another problem with the top 100 games is every single year, more and more board games come out. So as time passes, the top 100 games represents a smaller and smaller fraction of all the great games that are out there. So yes, it's a good starting point to look at. Maybe go, ooh, I'll do a little bit of research on this game. But some of my favorite games are in like 3,000, 4,000. It doesn't have to be in the top 100. Now, when you start getting below 10,000, there are some stinkers out there. So be careful. There's some stinkers in the 3000s. Be careful. <laughs> and so the board, board Game Geek was started in the distant future of the year 2000. That was the year that it was, the, the website was launched. And when they started putting up their list of board games and rankings in the top 100, I think they only had 13, 1400 games on the website. And now it's 100,000. So that disparity is just... It's a couple. Yeah, it's... The disparity is only growing. I do like looking at the top 100, and I do like most of the games that are in there, but that's the kind of gamer I am. I'm a lowest common denominator, Euro-style gamer. And that typically is what, what rockets up to the top 100. I'm not ashamed. I understand what kind of player I am. And I, I, think, I think that's the important thing. You know, we've talked about it in different ways. You play different games to figure out what you like, and once you get a, an idea of what you like, figure out the sources of media, podcasts, video, written, that could help you find those new games that you would kind of like. You said that you like uh, card drafting, uh, no, dice drafting, as long as, it, <laughs> as long as there's a lot of dice. Well, mm. how do you find out about games with a lot of dice? And that kind of stuff. And some people don't necessarily want to play the super complicated games, and... A lot of the games at Top 100 are super complicated. What are those review sources or board game content that could help you find those kind of stuff? So if if the Top 100 is not a good indicator for the games that you like, don't worry about it. I mean, it's it's fun to talk about, but like we we talk about it in this podcast because, like you said, we like a lot of the games mm -hmm. and um, it, the the kinds of games that are you know higher up in the ranks and. Uh, and it's a little bit of a fun completionist kind of deal to take an old list and just work through it and mm -hmm. find those games that as this uh, hobby progresses and as, you know, newer and newer designs come out, that we actually revisit those old treasures and make that consideration. But that's just because we like boring old games. <laughs> And finally, it's mail time, the last section of our podcast. And this podcast, our question comes from somebody who actually emailed us at boardgamefamous at gmail.com. <laughs> Did we say that too fast, Mom? <laughs> <laughs>
our our mom's complaint was that we uh, we read our email too fast. <laughs> did that make it? Did that make it into the episode? I, can't I don't remember. think so. I think she I think she said it off off mic. <laughs> It was definitely in the recording. I might have just edited that out. Uh. <laughs> so I guess that joke just didn't make sense to anyone except for us. So this question comes from a listener who says, Hey, David and Michael. Love the podcast. Been listening for a while now. I've got one question for David. What is the status of the dice drafting game you are creating? It's been about 2.5 years since I playtested it, but I would love to play it again and see how it's changed. So I think I've mentioned it on this podcast in just the briefest of of uh, mentions, but I in, in my spare time, besides playing games and recording a board game podcast and everything else board game related, I also like to design games as just a hobby. It hasn't gone anywhere yet. I've created four prototypes now for different board games. One of the ones that's gone the farthest is this dice drafting game that he's talking about. Dice drafting is my favorite mechanism, so I wanted to see what I could do with it. And it's called Spinny Color Dice Wheel because I never <laughs> I never had a great theme or a great name for it. And each round consists of rolling a pool of colored dice with having a meeple on a rondelle where that rondelle is divided into five wedges of colors. You draft dice, you move spaces to that color, you take the action associated with that color. And it is functional. It is functional. Now, what I'm trying to do with it after two and a half years, three years of development is put the fun into functional. And I'm really, really struggling with that. Um, At this point, I think the best thing I can do is remove all the color from the wedges. And it's going to be a really drastic change that I am not looking forward to making. So I'm focusing on the two games that I've been designing after Spinny Color Dice Wheel. Um, one of them being Blaze and Bloom, a very cute little card game. And the next the next one I'm working on is a city building game that I'm really looking forward to actually prototyping up, which would be my fifth prototype. One of these days I'm going to get a design out there. So yeah, true. I think, okay. I, I think one of the, the things that you've said to me in, in some kind of format, I'm just going to reword it, is uh, uh, designing games is easy. Making them fun and functional is hard. Oh, yeah. It's so tough. (laughs) So this is laughable when you haven't playtested any of my games because, one, you're not here. Uh, I have playtested one of your games. Thank you. Oh, which one did you playtest? The Space Dice one. Oh, I didn't even count that as one of the ones I prototyped. Yeah, that was an early idea that I had. Uh, That was was in early stages of prototypes. I haven't worked on it since that (laughs) playtest. (laughs) <laughs> I went, wow, that needs to go in a shelf and I need to think about that for a while. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> I won <laughs> by finding a mechanism that I could abuse super easily. <laughs> so with spinny color dice wheel, uh, a giant pool of dice is rolled like in a normal in a normal dice drafting game and everybody takes turn taking one of th- those dice and taking actions, and in my mind, I was trying to design a game that was as simple as Splendor, and the bloat and the action complexity and the interlocking mechanisms quickly overwhelmed that that simplicity goal. And just thinking about, like, I distinctly remember thinking that. It's like, okay, you're only taking 24 turns. That's about the same amount you take in Splendor. Boom. I've just created a simple masterpiece. 
Who oh boy, is that rough? I think, so if, you take, if you take the, uh, the colors out of it, what are you going to call it? I don't know. I mean, it's, it, that was never, that was never going to be its name. So spinny color dice wheel was never going to be the name. <laughs> just call it spinny dice wheel, I guess. I guess I could just call it spinny dice wheel. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of work that needs to go into it still. And it's, I have a lot of respect for board game designers going through this process. It's hard to sit down and come up with something, just invent a rule set. Fun fact that, uh, the, uh, dice game that you and i played for the alien frontiers the dice game essentially what it was uh that was one evening i, I wrote down all the rules for that that was one evening of I, thought I, I could i could tell <laughs> i think we can both say that we have a lot of respect for designers mm-hmm. oh and, yeah and and as we try to give our honest thoughts and feelings about it, we, we do it from a, a critic's view with respect and not malice. Right. So, <laughs> just like, we appreciate the hard work that was put into it, but... <laughs> but it also gives me... It also gives me a little bit of ire when I play a game that's not well-designed. Because it makes me think, well, well, I could have done that. <laughs> or, or the the game where like, did you not play test this, mm-hmm. or did you just get to a point where you're just like, screw it, ship it? That yeah, always makes you that, that that always makes you angry. Oh yeah, I know there could be I know there could be some business constraints. Still, but to answer your question, Troy, I think I'm trying to remember what happened since two and a half years ago. All I've done is add more mechanisms, and I'm trying to peel some away, trying to streamline the process, and I think a, a big constraint of the game, and this has always been in the game, is you have to draft increasingly higher you have to draft increasingly higher value dice, so you had to start with a lower number and then go up to, ideally, you would want a six to end your uh, three dice that you're drafting. I think I'm going to do away with that, because it's just too, it's, it's too fiddly. I would rather people be clever with the order they draft their dice than than be hamstrung by not having a high number die available for them because they went last in turn order. All right, so expect the Kickstarter. October. <laughs> oh god! Oh man, I don't know if I. No, it is. It is nowhere near ready. It is nowhere near ready. With that, we come to the end of our podcast. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another one of our ramblings. If you want to be the subject of a, of a mail time, please email us at boardgamefamous at gmail.com. Or you can join our Discord and join in our discussions and our fun games while we try and guess what everybody else is playing. The, the link to our Discord is down below. Follow us on Instagram using the link below. And we'll try to make sure that these links actually work this time. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> bye bye now. Bye bye.